Greetings, I'm Karen Colligan. Welcome to the Let's Talk Leadership Podcast. I'm the founder of a leadership organization called PeopleThink, where I created the Keep It Real Leadership Program that equips and elevates emerging and advancing leaders. It's all online and it can be done anywhere and it can be done at any time. What I know for sure is all leaders lead differently. And that's the beauty of leadership. It's so important to understand what your unique leadership style is. Now, that word is worth repeating, unique, because everyone has their own leadership style, which will inform how they're going to help your team and your organization move forward. You got to be real. And you got to be bold and you got to drive to take action. Because let's face it, people look to their leaders for vision. They look to their leaders for coaching and growth opportunities. This is why as a leader, you want to be crystal clear about your unique leadership style and competencies. The whole purpose of the Let's Talk Leadership podcast is to speak to a variety of leaders who are in different industries with different titles at different levels to better understand their unique way of leading. We're going to ask each leader the same six questions so we can provide you with a diverse way of looking at leadership. We want you to find those treasures that will help you be the best leader only you can be. So let's get moving and talk to our next leadership guest. In this episode, I am so excited to be speaking to Mike Monsbach, and he's going to help us really understand what his approach has been to leadership. So Mike, welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Karen, thank you. It is, uh, it is awesome to be here. Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. We got a lot to talk about, Mike. So so first of all, tell tell us a little bit about who you are before we get into this whole conversation about leadership. So so who are you, Mr. Mike Monsbach? I am that's a that's an interesting one. I am I think first and foremost a husband and father. And and we'll revisit that on several occasions because it tends to leak into everything that I do and, and how I approach leadership and, and how I approach life. And I've also had the good fortune to work at a bunch of great companies. Um, most recently, I was with a company called MindBody for a couple of years. And uh, MindBody has this amazing purpose-driven passion um, to essentially make people happier while making them healthier. For all those of us who love to be purpose-driven, it was a pretty remarkable place to be. And it's certainly aligned directly to you who you are. I mean, just starting off saying I'm a husband and a father first, I mean, and to be happier and healthier, I mean, they just are completely connected. That's a dream come true from a work perspective. So let's, let's talk about the first thing that's so important in terms of the definition of leadership. And what I continue to find, Mike, is that everybody just defines it so differently. And it's been astounding to listen to what that means for people. So uh, it's so individual and it's so personal. Tell us about you. What, what, how do you define leadership? You, you nailed it already. It is so deeply personal. It's a, it's a word like strategy that, that means something almost completely different to anybody, to everybody that, that, that we talk with. 
Um, and I, I love the question. I, I think that for me, uh, leadership is fundamentally about understanding. It's about understanding what is important. And, and that, that's at a very personal level. It's at an institutional level. It's in an organizational level. It's, a, it's at a cultural level. And then kind of observing the what and, and asking the really important question of why that is important. And, and the why that is important allows us to walk backwards on roads with people to kind of find their sources. And once we've done that, we can, we can start to create shared purpose and then create momentum and even look to things like shared vision. And when we have shared purpose and shared vision, we can talk about how to measure those things and what shared success looks like. So leadership, I guess, is fundamentally about first and foremost, understanding what's important and then digging really, really, really far into why that's important for the individual, for the company, for the organization. And from those truths, we can lead to shared purpose and shared vision and shared success. Yes. And so what's so interesting about this is, you know, you're talking about the what we have to dive a little bit into the what and then you talk about the why, because there is no reason I am going to follow you, Mike Monsbach, if I don't understand your why and I don't understand what we're going after. And then to talk about that whole idea about shared purpose and shared vision, because I want to know how what I do for a living in your organization is going to map back to that shared vision and that shared purpose and that I'm having an impact. I mean, it makes a huge difference. And the leader is the one that can really help set that tone and make certain that the culture of the organization really maps to I'm as important as anyone else in the organization because what I do maps to that shared vision. Karen, that's it. That, that alignment of shared vision, that that becomes the baseline for company journeys that are epic because then leaders, and when I say leaders, I don't mean just the people who are leading teams. I mean, everybody at the organization can then lead and focus on twin outcomes. Outcome one being, what's my personal why? And outcome two, what's the company why? And when we get those things in concert, I mean, that is unlocking cultural potential. That is unlocking value like nothing else. And it's the most gratifying journey possible where I get to achieve something that's important to me personally. And I get to see that resonate and benefit a company itself. I and mean, you said it perfectly well. It is, can I align the work I'm doing towards, an outcomes of a, uh, towards the outcomes of a company? And can I see it happen? And can we grow together? That's magic. It's magic. And the fact that every single person is a leader and it doesn't matter if I have a team of people working for me or I'm a team lead on a project, whatever I do, if I'm an individual performer, I'm still a leader and I still have to be aligned. And so it's really critical to know that even if I walk into an organization as an individual performer, I am still a leader. I, I mean, we just can't get away from that. And if we can put people into that mindset, then all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, I really can have that strong impact. Yeah. What is my capacity to lead? What is my capacity to desire to do the discovery personally that will help me continue to grow and in turn grow the company? Yes, we are all, each of us, leaders. And that is not a title. It is something that we decide for ourselves irrespective of whether we are individual contributors or have teams of thousands of people. 
So, so, so then we talk about, you know, leadership and we talk about how we all have um, a, a why and a, a, and a shared vision. And, and now I want to go to something that I believe is the core of a leader and it's the values. And, and the way I explain values when I talk about them is it's really our guiding light. It's our North Star. It's our how we navigate making decisions. And what we know is once we're clear about our values, then we can make those bold, tough decisions and stick to them because they represent what we represent. And so this question I'm going to ask is, what are your three values? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous question, and I love it because I'm really trying to force the people I'm speaking to to really get to three. So can you get to three, Mike? Uh, let's try. Let's see what happens when I get to the third. <laughs> and if I trip on myself, maybe you'll allow me four, but I promise not to go to 10. <laughs> Thanks. I'm so glad I'm running so, this uh, podcast. <laughs> first and foremost, the, the value of, of self-reflection. That's a little bit different than self-awareness for me. Self, self-awareness is a close second to self-reflection, but if I've got to choose between the two, I'm going to go with self-reflection. And, and that's because self-reflection to me is self-awareness plus uh, kind of an active feedback loop of now what am I going to do with it? It's great that I'm aware of who I am and what I'm good at and what I'm insecure in and uh, where I'm going to see challenge and where I'm going to have adversity, uh, where I'm going to excel without any question. Those are great things. It's far better when something new happens and I can adapt all of that self-awareness and mature it and evolve it to a next phase. And it's that internalization of whatever life is throwing at us that to me is this kind of core of self-reflection. Really, what, what are our strengths and, and what are our weaknesses and what are the catalysts for others? Where does my personal baggage get in the way? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I know that my personal baggage is getting in the way? And how do I then observe that and make sure I'm stepping, standing aside it and making sure that it's not in fact, in, in, it's not, it's not causing problems for other or for others or for myself. Right. And ultimately and ha- it boils down to, can we, can we continually learn and grow? And what are the mechanisms that we use to do that? And that to me is self-reflection. The personal baggage piece, it's the awareness, but, and Mike, how many times are we not aware of it? So the self-reflection, because you're looking for self-awareness plus the feedback means someone actually might be able to tell you about that baggage that you don't even know you have and that you see. It, you know, it reminds me of a story many, many, many years ago. Uh, we're, we're avid backpackers. And many years ago, my wife, Jen, and I took our two uh, then quite young kids. They were 9 and 11 on a, about a month-long backpacking trip. We were living in very close quarters and we were about two, two and a half weeks into the trip and we're hiking, uh, you know, we're doing somewhere between, I don't know, eight, 15, eight and 15 miles a day with bag, with bags and sleeping in the same tent because the kids were small. And about two and a half weeks in, we cross a bridge and my wife says, you know, let's all stop. I'd love to take a picture of the four of us. And in that moment, I decided that, that I just wanted to keep going forward because one of my one of the things that I constantly reflect on is my desire for momentum and to keep moving forward. And this was my wife saying, let's just stop and take a picture. 
rather than answering the only way I could, which was, of course, let's take a picture. That makes complete <laughs> sense. It's a beautiful place, and we, we're going we're gonna to revisit this for the rest of our lives. I pushed back and said, hey, let's not stage a picture. This is so beautiful out here. Let's just take it as we can later, and let's just keep going. And she was tired, and I was tired. And that little, that little difference of opinion kind of went into, uh, you know, it started as a five-foot hole and went into a 10-foot hole, and then it went <laughs> nuclear. And, <laughs> we, and Karen, we, we said things that we had never said to each other and have never said since. We blew through all the parental controls that we had. Our kids just stood there, mouth agape. <laughs> as we literally screamed at each other and then I lost it even further and just left. I literally with a hundred miles to go, I turned around and hiked away as fast as I could. Oh. That's, that's, a, that's a thinking lead. That's a thinking leader for you. And so <laughs> about an hour later, um, my, my 11 year old who is jog walking catches up and he simply says, Papa, Papa, what are you doing? And I had no answer because I was deep in my, deep in my hole and he said I, I don't i don't understand you've taught us over and over and over again that the only thing that matters is communication and that anything is possible with communication and so much isn't when we don't oh, and this is an 11 year old who's oh, tagging behind me oh, oh it was one of those moments when you stop in your tracks and you want to talk about self-reflection it was the okay, it's time to self-reflect. It is time for you to take a big, deep breath and go back to your principles and go back to everything that, you, that has been so important to you that you have taught it over and over and over again, and now you're being held accountable by your children mm -hmm. to what you know you need to do. Mm -hmm. And one of the joys of backpacking is you really can't separate for long. And so that was the, you know, 11 in the morning and for the next six hours, we waited for the Jen and my, my second child to catch up. And for the next six hours, they just sat there and peppered us both with questions about why we were willing to walk away from communication and why we acted the way we did, despite the fact that we had taught them the exact opposite for so many years. And that was the only conversation that they wanted to have. Wow. And let me tell you what that looks like for six hours. Oh, no, thanks. <laughs> A brutal? <laughs> was it brutal, Mike? <laughs> It was one of the hardest days that we've ever had. It, you know, you, you, you can't take it back enough. You can simply spend a bunch of time talking about what the root cause of the breakdown was. Why was I fragile in that moment? Why was I unrelenting in that moment? Why? You know, what were those, what was, you know, how, how can I be more situationally aware next time? Um, it's a great lesson. And let me tell you, it was a very hard, hard, hard lesson because I didn't want to have it even knowing that my children were right, even knowing that I was completely wrong, I didn't want to have that conversation. I was exhausted emotionally and physically. And yet it was a complete learning and coaching opportunity, my learning, my children's coaching. And we had to reflect that. And we got through it. And um, there's another story, maybe we'll get to later, uh, about the consequences of, uh, of our getting through it too. But yeah, that, was, that, was, that was for me one of the great moments of not just being self-aware, but of, of being very self-reflective. And you think about an 11-year-old being the leader in that situation and having you yeah. be the one who needs to self-reflect and begin thinking about what is that personal baggage that, that, that got me here. More importantly, Mike, 
What's that personal baggage I'm holding on to so tight that I'm almost mm. not willing to do that communication thing that I have taught my two boys that we both have. You and Jen both have taught the two boys and, and that woo, takes guts. And um, I'm sure you guys will be talking about that for a very, 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 very long time. Yeah. Wow. Oh, we do. The kids love, the kids love bringing it up. Um, they, they love it. They, I bet. they love it. And it's, it's just a great, it's a great example of the honesty and beauty of, of what you can teach your kids and what they can teach you. And, and, you know, perhaps not ironically at all, perhaps directly, the second value after self reflection for me is humility. We can do anything if we are humble enough to understand that the set of things that we know at any age, at any time, uh, fits into boxes that are much smaller than those that contain what we don't know. And that humility, if we can allow ourselves to be humble, and I don't mean to say that we practice humility. Uh, you know, I don't mean it as a, as a clever thing to say. I mean that we desperately understand that we are frail, that we are insecure, and that we do not have all the knowledge that we need to, to be the best people that we can. If we can do that, then we can be vulnerable and we can create an environment where that becomes a ripple effect for others who can then feel safe, who can expose themselves and their own insecurities and their own vulnerabilities and their own magical strengths. And then, Anything is possible because the bonds that you create from that shared vulnerability are incredibly strong and incredibly enduring, uh, and they just don't break. Yes, and to try and be vulnerable in front of others, and it doesn't matter what we're talking about, whether it's an organizational others, team others, family others, children others, to show vulnerability takes so much strength and it takes so much willpower to stay in the moment so that you can hear what others are saying. You know, I often say, DK, DK, you don't know what you don't know. And in those moments yeah. of vulnerability, we have to be able to hear it and then be humbled by the fact that someone has enough strength, Mike, to trust that they can tell you what you may not want to hear and that as you just indicated, the bond then becomes so strong, it's almost like nothing can break it. And to get from point A to point Z there, um, it takes time and, and building that whole trust factor and knowing that when I'm vulnerable with you, you are not going to beat me up later on about that vulnerability. It does not come back. It is always supported and embraced. And you said something else that's super interesting, Karen. You, you said, and these are my words, not words, but you essentially said that giving feedback is hard. It is hard for people to tell others truly what they think. And one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was that when somebody gives you feedback, there are only two words that are that are worth responding and that they are thank you. Mm -hmm. They are only thank you. They are not thank you with a justification for why I behaved the way I did. Mm -hmm. They are not thank you with 
a repeat of the praise that you got. They are simply thank you. And then it is up to the receiver of that feedback to understand and to internalize and to make a decision about what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings us to me to, to the third, the third component, um, the third value, and that's honesty. Mm-hmm. It's honesty in all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's particularly honesty around hard conversations. It's, you know, it's easy to exhort people with positive messages and passion. It's really hard to tell people when things are not going well, when the company's not doing well, when their performance isn't particularly good. And understanding how to have honest conversations in a constructive manner. It's not about what you did wrong. It's about the right fit. It's about, are we focused on the right things? It's about, have I done a good enough job communicating what's important and why it's important? Um, Have I aligned us, our values in sync? Being able to be honest in all those moments goes right back to what you said earlier. And that's when you are honest and when you are vulnerable, anything is possible. And uh, in environments where that's not possible, um, those are just tougher environments to be in. There, there, are, there are environments where honesty and humility and vulnerability are not in favor, um, where they're anathema. Uh, those aren't environments that I particularly enjoy. And, and, and on the contrary, uh, those that embrace the, these values are, are ones that I think can go anywhere. Oh, absolutely. And what what I, I definitely absolutely know in, in my career is that people join an organization because of the values and people leave an organization because of the values. Because if my values are not aligned with the organization's values, it ain't ever going to work. End of story, period. No. And, and so as you're talking about it, if, if you walked into an organization that didn't have a place for self-reflection, didn't have a place for humility and didn't have uh, a place for honest, strong, hard conversations, you'd last like five minutes, maybe 10, not much. And, and why would why would anybody force themselves into a situation where my core, my emotional core is not aligned to the organization's emotional core. It just doesn't even make sense to me, which is why that question about values is so important because we have to be clear so that we make sure that we're joining the right places so that we can have joy and, and, and um, excel because we're aligned not only in the business and shared vision, also in our values and shared values. Absolutely. And they are also, they also present an opportunity. There are many organizations haven't taken the time for lots of good reasons to make their values explicit. It's not necessarily that they don't have them or that they are toxic or unhealthy. It is that they've been running so hard and running so fast that they've just been getting stuff done. They got work to do. They're moving out. Right. And in that context, as long as it works, as long as you don't need them, you can actually get away with without value, without explicit values for a long time. And to scale leadership, to scale teams, hell, to scale families, <laughs> to me, we have to make values explicit. They're, they represent our why. They're, they're that next level below the what. And once we have the why, we can start to figure out the how, and we can build a roadmap for moving to that place. And that may be aspirational. It may be something that we never actually achieve, but it's a direction and a vector and a place for us to go. And it gives us the ability to start making decisions that are based on principles rather than decisions that are based off whatever's happening in that day 
situational decision-making, uh, which can work again for a while, but ultimately you, you don't, you'll take you over a cliff at 90 miles an hour. When we make those values explicit, those whys explicit, we can bake that into the foundation of company culture, of our family culture, of institutional culture, or if you look at our political environment, of political culture. Those are our raison d'etre, right? That, that, those are our core whys. And that's exactly what I was going to say is about the culture, because once you understand your your values in an organization and begin to live those values, you can hire to those values. You can build your culture to those values. And people will self-select out and say, oh, man, I don't know. I didn't sign up for this. Or they can say, you know what? I want to sign up for this. And so it really is the foundation for how we're going to build an organization. I mean, if you have a small organization, fine. You're, everybody's just doing whatever they have to in order to get the work done. And okay, sure, I'll take this and I'll do that. As the organization grows and matures, processes have to be put in place and those kinds of things. Much more importantly before the processes is who do we want to be when we grow up? And it has to be based on doing that hard work of what's our culture going to be? And we have to start with our values. So um, to me, values are just yeah. so critical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so Mike, we're clear about the values. You're clear about self-reflection is number one. Really have to not only have self-awareness, but you have to have that feedback loop with you as well. Humility, uh, number two, and honesty, number three. So so we're clear about where those sit. So now I want to start thinking about transition and change. And you know what's going on in in the world now is I, I can't even put words to it, but there's so much transition. There's so much change. I mean, between the global pandemic and the social awakening and the economic implications of, of, of all of that. And everyone right now, and, and I'm going to use the word everyone, is saying, what about me? I mean, all these changes, all this transition, what about me? So when I think about leaders and how they lead through through those types of things, how do you lead through transition and change? I mean, what, what, what do you do for your team to help them really recognize what's going on and that there will be a light at the end of the tunnel? I think that to a certain extent, we are, we, the collective we, we are always going through transitions and the you know perhaps a, a question is is how much of that is on the surface how much of it is conscious and i guess the way to think about that one would be how much we actively participate in with awareness and reflection and, and how much is is happening around us without our active involvement so to me the, there there is always transition uh, whether it's above the surface or below the surface and you know we tend to bucket those in, in two big buckets. One is things are going really well. Um, we're aligned. People are more optimistic than not. They're more growth oriented than not. In those times, it's pretty easy to avoid identifying the need to transition because we're comfortable. It's this don't rock the boat mentality. And yet in these best of times, these can be fantastic times to seek new perspectives by simply extending your time horizon and understanding that while we may not need to change something with urgency in this moment at this time, that in the next moment, whether that's a week or a month or a year or three years from now, we have much deeper, much more systemic challenges that we can begin to address because we have the luxury of time. Because we have the luxury of time, we can look for those gems. 
we're all pretty short-term focused. And in times of ease, general ease, uh, those to me are the, op- the, the fantastic times to, to harness energy, look deep, and start driving transformation that may not be of massive benefit in the next 10 minutes, but it will be of massive benefit in the period after that. And what that thing is depends on what my personal or what our company's goals are. Um, they can be anything. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is a period of acute organization and cultural misalignment, where people are pessimistic, are generally more negative than, than positive. And I think that these are often the times that people seek change. They are times that catalyze change. You know, I would argue that if we can stand being, going back to our earlier conversation, if we can stand being vulnerable and honest and humble and self-aware, then we can change almost anything in times of what I'll broadly classify as cultural distress because it's not working. And so when you apply a sense of urgency to the need to change, then almost anything is possible in transition. So in in my perfect world, you understand what you can change when you don't need to. There, again, kind of going back to this, there's always transition. There's always opportunity to transform. Understand what you can change when you don't need to. And if you need to change because there's something strident or urgent or broken or appearingly broken or seemingly broken, then leverage that energy to go fix big problems. Go ultimately fix them. And, and the only way to do that when things feel shattered is to focus on what's coming afterwards. And that means that we have to heal. Hmm. That means that we have to look to evolve past whatever is creating the conflict in this moment. Whatever, is, whatever feels broken cannot be because of somebody. It is not a personal problem. It is because the system wasn't set up Mm. to accomplish what needs to get done right now. And when you look past the person or the people and understand what brought, what is the system that brought us here, then you can start to unravel the road by walking back on the path that got us here. Then you can meet people when they began the path to where we are now, as opposed to meeting them and expecting them to behave differently based on something that's occurring in this moment. So to me, in, in that, in this notion that transition is all around us at all times, that we should embrace deep transition when we don't need to, and then when we need to, we should embrace it to make really, really hard transformations that then drive to healing. Those require, first and foremost, that we don't judge, which is really, really hard to do. And that we spend a ton of time understanding why we got. Again, back to this, why are we where we are? And from that, we can create a common point from which the journey called a reconciliation can be begun anew. It is not me or you. It is, again, our opportunity to create shared vision through shared values 
Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. It, it's so hard. And, and, and one, one point I really want to emphasize of what you just talked about is how to take away the personalization of this transition, of this change, because a lot of people take those types of activities very, very personal. And until I can, can be neutral about what's going to happen and realize it's not all about me. It might be about the system, the process, the organization, the team, the product, the service, all of those. The set of incentives. Right? Yes. The set of incentives. Yes. And to find that common point. And I can't get there because I'm so blurred with what about me? What about me? What about me? To neutralize that is so complicated and hard. And it's really what has to get done if, in fact, we are going to own the transition and change that will have to occur. It's hard. Oh, that's so yeah, hard. I mean, it is super hard. And it has been, you know, when I'm thinking about the word transition or transformation, I think that where all of that ultimately lands is in this notion of evolution. Right. We, we are evolving. It is evolution is relentless. And there are moments when we devolve, when we feel like we're going backwards, that we're not moving forward, that we're moving in the, in the quote unquote wrong direction. But that wrong direction is probably somebody else's right direction for some set of reasons. Mm. And if we don't understand why that's the right direction for somebody else, then how do we bring them forward on a path? Mm-hmm. So then it requires us to deconstruct the, again, getting into why is that the right direction and what is the value that got them to that point and what's the common denominator between the set of values that I believe are important and the set of values that they believe are important and can we find common ground and on that common ground can we move forward and whether that's cross-functional in an organization, uh, you know, whether it's institutional or it's part of a body politic, it is roughly the same thing. It is deeply understanding what gets people to where they are so that we can take them and us to a shared common denominator to that shared vision. It's hard because evolution is hard. Nobody told us it was going to be easy, and it isn't. <laughs> well, you did, <laughs> use the word, right now. you did use the word relentless, uh, relentless and that is cer- certainly the truth. In, in this whole idea of finding the common ground, I mean, we have to be relentless to find the common ground. And you know what, Mike? There's going to be times I'm going to be like, uh-uh, uh-uh. And that's what happens when we start trying to make transformation or transition or change. There are people going, Mm-mm, you can't make me, uh-uh. And so those are the the people we hope from a negative perspective will self-select out of, of this transformation and this evolution because you are absolutely correct. Relentless. That is the word. I mean, we cannot, and we wouldn't want to stop the evolution. I mean, that that's part of the joy um, and the pain that, that goes with it. So not everybody, you're right. That's a really good point, Karen. Not everybody wants to evolve and, and that's okay. Uh, they're very, people, there are lots of people who are very happy with what they have and where they are and they don't want to change. You know, it, it just, you know again, I'll go back to another family story because it, it, it seems, it seems appropriate in the, in the context of the conversation. That was, uh, we, we didn't want to be the parents who watched our kids grow up with super brief answers at the dinner table about how their day was. It's fine. You know, do you have a good day? No. Yes. <laughs> and, and so when our kids were very young, literally, 
literally learning to talk, we said, you know, every night at dinner, we're going to ask two questions. And one of them is going to be what was great today. And the other is going to be what could you have done better? It was, you know, the fantastic open questions and the kids would answer them to the best of their ability. And, you know, sometimes they'd, they'd see our reaction and, and then they'd get excited because we reacted positively to something and they'd try to repeat it two or three times in a row and get away with multiple nights. But, <laughs> but it was, it was fantastic. And, you know, in two or three years into this exercise, one of the kids finally said, well, you know, why don't you guys answer these questions? So that makes sense. So we'd go around the table and we'd start when one kid would say, you know, what was great? Well, what could you have done better? And Jen and I got pretty good at this and enjoyed it. Um, until, until several years ago when, when we were going around the table and, you know, I answered the question of what was, what could have been better. And I answered it and it was a, um, I don't remember what I answered. It was, it was not a particularly insightful what I could have done better, but what made it particularly insightful was my younger child at that point said, really dad? He said, pop, he said, you and mom um, had a fight today. And by the way, this is a very different, this is many years after the, the backpacking, uh, the backpacking incident. And we <laughs> oh, thought so we'd learn from that. You're a normal couple. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we're, you know, we've had lots of, lots of, lots of little interim battles, but we're, <laughs> we're doing pretty well. And he, and he says, you and mom had this, had this battle today and you guys never resolved it. And you're sitting here telling me that the thing that you could have done better today was, you know, I don't know, exercise more. And he's like, you know, doesn't, really? <laughs> That's what you're going to be working on. Oh, you got this cloud hanging over your head. Oh, and, uh, ouch! And I stopped, and and I looked at Jen, and she looked at me, and she kind of smiled, but she smiled not because I was being trapped, because she knew that she was going to about to answer for the same thing. <laughs> and and um, let me tell you, we answered the question, and I said you're completely right, and let's. That's what I haven't done well, and I'm going to revise what I have done well, um, and what I have done well is. I taught you to ask hard questions at the right time. So that's really what I'm going to celebrate that I accomplished today. But, but let me tell you, you know, one of the things that we learned in that process is our children had no problem kind of starting with what they could have done better or what went well. And what we learned by watching our patterns is that Jen and I always started with what was great. Mm. We never started with what we could have done better. For them, what they could have done better was as, was as natural as, 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 what, uh, as what went well. Wow. And so, you know, that's to me a, a classic example of the only way that we're going to go through and evolve is to do things that are really, 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 really hard. Mm. Um, we can't avoid them. Not if we're going to progress. Not if we're going to move forward as a couple, as an individual, as an organization, as an institution, or as a culture. So, so you're raising two little leaders there. You got you got two little leaders on on your hand who are asking the hard questions. So, uh, that's normally your role, Mike. I've been around you long enough to know you love a good hard question. However, <laughs> coming from your two children, maybe not. <laughs> I think it's time for me to evolve right out of here. Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I am, being, I am being knocked off the cliff, and I love it. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. Love it. So, so I, I, you know, I'm going to ask you the next question is about, and, and you've answered it in, in different ways already, Mike. However, the, the specific question is about the best leaders, of course, are curious and learn. And, and so my question to you, and, and I don't want to answer it for you, but I feel like I can now that I've just had this conversation with you is what tools and resources do you use to continually make sure that you're evolving and that you're, you're not, you know, stuck and that you're listening and you're being vulnerable? I mean, I try to consistently practice 
self-reflection. And from that, you know, I quickly get to humility and, and know where I'm being honest and dishonest with myself. Mm-hmm. That said, the, the couple of things that I do that really help me, that jog me, that push me forward are both things that, that are cause for discomfort and reflection. You know, the first is I love to read. You know, I, I, don't, I don't espouse a lot of self-help books. I do love to read. I love to read literature. I love to read psychology and philosophy. There are a couple of books that in the last five years have a couple of three books that have blown my mind and have caused me to think and, and reflect in different ways. And one of them is a book, a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor wow. Frankl. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and Frankl just basically teaches that freedoms are, are to choose, mm-hmm. right? Between our attitude to any circumstances, we can choose our own way. So to me, Frankl's book was a game changer for me. And then more recently, I, I fell into, you know, believe it or not, I fell into Carl Jung's Red Book mm-hmm. that was published posthumously for him. There are lots of great little tidbits in there. I think the one that has most transformed me and the one that most made me uncomfortable is I've always felt that, that we should be that we should live very intentional lives, that we should be intentional in all we do. And yet he makes this very good point that if we are intentional in all in all we do, we are the furthest thing from humble possible. Because how can we intend to know what is possible? And if we are so intentional that we're blinded to the possibilities mm-hmm. that we don't intend then we miss out on so much of the greatness of life. And that was like, oh, whoa, so much for being constantly intentional. <laughs> okay, so has that shifted how intentional you have become or are you, so, or are you just yes. more aware of it? I am, I am both more aware of how intentional I try to be and I am practicing less intentionality. Being in um, the moment, you mean? In the moment, which is, mm-hmm. which is very hard for me. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then finally, you know, this, this book of called white fragility by by d'angelo and then uh, coats between the world and me i have i have come to very stark terms that while i would never have defined myself as a racist in a million years that i am a product of institutionalized and systemic racism and that has caused me to think and rethink over and over and over again how i operate in this world and has been caused for a lot of very hard conversations, uh, even socially distanced conversations with this little pod of friends that we get that we get together with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it, it. It's beautiful to realize that there's so much for me to learn, and it's it's dismaying to realize how far I have to go mm-hmm. to to do the right thing. So reading, reading that causes me discomfort and reflection has been good. And then the second thing is no surprise here is uh, is doing things that are hard in particular backpacking i think the reason that my family loves to backpack is we get this extraordinary beauty of being in the moment of being of, of seeing these vistas uh, and being in places that are that blow our minds that are much bigger than all of us and yet we are so completely human and we are often at our weakest because we push ourselves so hard and we get to do that together so we get to experience the greatest of highs and the grace of lows together. And it's uncomfortable and it caused for reflection over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and if you think about the backpacking tricks that you're doing, you have to be very, very intentional about the structure and the planning of it. And then once you're there, I mean, you know, there's a point A and you have to get to, to the end. However, what would happen, I would imagine, is that's once you know where where you're going, then all of a sudden you can 
relax a little bit to start to see what is happening in that moment. And you can be much more in the moment than you would be able to be if you hadn't been intentional with the planning and the structure. Because once you've got that down and you know what you're packing in and where you're going in that type of thing, um, that could be a, a great learning in terms of what you're trying to do here from a growth perspective. So let's talk about that. That's a fascinating point that you make. And I would, I would say that in general, you are completely right. And I would have argued that you, you are absolutely right most of the time. However, uh, I'll give you a, a super recent experience that happened two weeks ago. And, and that was that we spent a lot of time planning um, and a lot of time doing checklists and a lot of time doing our, our route finding. And we pushed ourselves too hard on a trip about literally 11 days ago and found ourselves in a place of having to decide whether we were to continue forward. So we had hiked for about 12 hours and gone up about 8,000 feet. And we had two choices. We were not on a trail. Um, we were doing our own route finding. I had done you know, a, classic, a classically bad move. I relied on our GPS as opposed to looking at our topo map. And here we are at 6.30 at night sun is setting deep at, you know, 13,000 feet. And we don't know how long it's going to take us to get where we're going. We suspect mm. it'll take us an hour, hour and a half. We know if we can get back and then it'll take us three hours. And that was with, that was not a plan. Uh, we were completely exhausted. And in that moment, we had the choice of judging each other. We had spent a bunch of time doing that on the way up. Should we go forward? Should we go back? How much planning did we do? How little planning did we do? And we said, we can spend all the energy in the world judging how we got here, or we can simply observe that we are here and observe that we have two choices. We go forward or we go back. We cannot stay here. It was a frozen ice pond at 13,000 feet, no place to camp. And so we said, we're gonna go forward because that's a, we would rather step into that unknown given what we have and what we know then go backwards, which is too painful of a known, uh, and scramble over all the scree and pallet and rock for, for three hours. And so that was the moment that we celebrate as the learning moment mm. and the learning opportunity because we chose to observe and not judge when everything that we thought we had done to get to a point of, uh, of being able to, you know, be a comfortable place to observe uh, was gone. We were not comfortable. We were, we were hungry. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look at the photos of that from that trip, each of us is bent over our poles, basically saying, I just want I just want to go to sleep right here on this rock. Right. <laughs> that was uncomfortable. And yeah. it created that discomfort created that beautiful moment of I mean, obviously we, got, we have to do a better job planning. We have to do all these things differently next time so we don't put ourselves in these positions. But it's, but it was watching how we handled that that moment of, of chaos. <laughs> Um, that was the that was the lesson for all of us. It was not aiming fingers at each other. It was acknowledging we were in this together, and we had to go forward or back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing, amazing. Because because then the next question, and, and as I'm I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, okay, how do you how do you give the people that you're working with, you know, tools for for their growth? I mean. What do you do for that? You can't say, okay, here's a backpack and here's a, a map and we're, we want you to go out for five days and come back. I mean, however, the lessons learned in there is obviously observe, not judge. We were in chaos. We have to make a, a strong 
decision that will impact four people and keep us safe and moving forward with that momentum you talked about. So, so what do you do for, for the people that, that work with you and to keep them growing and learning? I don't know that there's any one thing that I am, that, that I do for those that I have the good fortune to work with. I suspect that everything that I try to do, and I would have said with intent, with intent, now I'll say with both intent and when I'm not intentional, because I'm practicing that one as well, cues back to helping everybody that we work with, everybody that I get the chance to work with to understand their own purpose, to be self-reflective and to be humble and to be honest. And to, by embracing those three things, they can then be ambassadors that create that very same bow wave for others around them. And, and I imagine a world where, where more people than fewer practice humility and practice self-reflection and feel confident and comfortable and excited about being honest, even when it's painful. And, and from that, each of our whys can grow so much more easily. From that why, from that place of shared purpose, we can look forward and we can start to architect what a shared vision or a shared purpose, a shared success looks like. And to me, all of this stuff is, you can, you can talk about it at a deeply, deeply personal level and you can talk about it at an institutional level and you can talk about it at a, at a, you know, at a cultural level. When we feel like we have shared purpose, we seek alignment in ways in, in ways to dictate how to achieve that. When we march blindly with hows without understanding the what or the why, it's very easy to wake up one day and go, I don't, I don't remember if I ever knew why I'm doing what I'm doing. So kind of back to your question, always hewing back to understanding people's purpose. And, and that doesn't mean that people have a purpose necessarily. It doesn't mean that they've had the luxury to discover it. Often we have the opportunity to, to, to begin that conversation for people for the first time. It is a luxury to be purpose-driven. It is a luxury. It is one that we owe to ourselves and to all of those around us if we, uh, if we want to lead. Because ultimately, that is what makes people desire to, to prevail, um, to be relentless, to move forward. It is their ability to understand how their why aligns to your leader's why, your company's why, your body politics why, your broader purpose. And the fact that when you think about the luxury of finding your why, the luxury of finding your purpose. That is something that's really incredibly important for each individual to spend some time doing that. And oftentimes, as we've spoken about today, I mean, we're in the suit, man. We got things to do. I got to do this. I got, oh my goodness, I'm at this meeting and that meeting, and I've got this deliverable and that deliverable. And I forget. And all of a sudden, you know, it's three months later, and I haven't spent any time on really checking in with myself. And am I aligned? with the why. Well, how do I know? I haven't spent any time on the why. So really yeah. encouraging 
team, your teams to say, okay, what's your why, what's your purpose statement and, and giving them some tools to do that is amazing because then that 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 gives them a good way to continue to live their their purpose, their alignment, their their life, if you will. Yeah. Nice. Absolutely. Any 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 model that can help with that, any model that can be cause for self-reflection and discovery uh, is a beautiful tool. Agree. Agree. OK, so the last question, Mr. Mike. So this is all about joy. You, I mean, I. It, I I don't want to go to work any day if I'm not going to find joy. And I don't mean let's have a party and jump up and down. I don't mean every day, you know, is joyful. However, you know, that whole purpose and, and why, why we're here. So when I think about joy, what I want to think about and, and ask you about is that balance. And, and, you know, you've given us some really good nuggets into what, how you stay balanced. But what do you do that, that keeps you grounded so that, when you are in a leadership role and you're with teams and organizations and so on, that, that you have a sense of balance so that everything isn't about work. And in this day and age where so many people are obviously working from home, it's hard for them to have boundaries. It's hard for them to understand when do I turn the computer off? When do I not have to respond to that email? And we all have to have balance. So what do you do for balance? Well, I get my dopamine fixes from the mountains and from the ocean. Yes. So just just exercise, uh, you know, being being on the infinite ocean and and being in the infinite mountains, those provide me enormous balance. And, and I'm sure they do because um, because they, they require concentration and they require work and they, they allow me to disappear in my head while getting physical activity. Uh, you know, and, and pushing those dopamine limits. Yeah. And outdoor being the key here. And, and, and I'm guessing that when you're reading your books, you're probably sitting outside too. I mean, um, you know, the outdoors speaks to you, speaks <laughs> to you. No question about it. It has to. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, you have, oh my, I can't thank you enough um, for being so open and telling us stories and oh, so motivating and relentless. Let's not forget how relentless the whole conversation was. And so, you know, Mike, I, I can't thank you enough and, and let you know how grateful I am for our, our time and you, again, really being so thoughtful. I mean, there, there's you've said a lot and, and you meant it and um, you were humble and you were vulnerable and self-reflective and incredibly honest. So I love that you live your values. So with that, thank you, Mr. Michael Monsbach. It's an, it's an absolute pleasure. And, and as I reflect um, in my practicing of self-reflection, I would say that the other thing that keeps me balanced and brings me joy is that I have a muse. In my case, I have three muses and, and they are my children and my wife and they hold me accountable to my efforts. They're very clear on what I hope for and what I hold myself to. And they call BS when I fail. Yeah. And that happens all the time. Yeah. And having them as muses is very balancing. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a joy. And they, they keep you honest, Mr. Mike. They keep you honest. That's for sure. Love right. it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Karen Colligan, and you've been listening to Mr. Mike Monsbach. Till the next episode of Let's Talk Leadership Podcast, have a good one. And don't forget to keep it real. 
Music by Poddington Bear. Editing by Mary Lee Williams.